Bibles and head on back over to Philippians. Um, and there will be inaccurate information in your bulletin because your bulletin is going to tell you that we're going to try to accomplish Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 to 11. And I'll just tell you right now, that's not going to happen this morning. Um, I way overthought what uh, we were going to be able to do together and then hopped in. Um, to be quite honest, as I stand here this morning, I kind of wish I had left chapter 3 verse 1 as its own Sunday and maybe that'll give you an idea of, of what the rest of the verses look like as well. So we're going to try to get through 7 and then next week we're going to pick up an 8 and then finish what we would have next week anyways. And verses 8 to 11 in our Bibles are actually one sentence as Paul wrote them. Um, anyways, so uh, hopefully that makes sense. Hopefully this morning makes sense. But let's do a little bit of recap as we just think about where we've been, what Paul has said. It's been about five weeks since we have gotten into the book of Philippians. We stepped out the third Sunday in November and we haven't been back unless you prepped and read Philippians chapters 1 and 2 over the last couple of days. But Paul is writing this letter from prison. And he's in a Roman prison, and he talks about his imprisonment, and he talks about wearing chains. And as best as historians have been able to piece together and surmise, uh, he probably was under house arrest, but literally chained to another human being. And uh, the imperial guard would rotate soldiers about every four hours, and they would take the shackle off the soldier who was on duty and they'd put it on the guy coming in. And the other end of that shackle was attached to Paul. And so he had some freedom and some movement while under house arrest, but you can only go so far if you have another human being attached to you. Some of you mothers know that if you have young children. Um, and so, you know, there's limitations even though it was house arrest. And he's writing this letter back to a church that he had planted about eight to ten years prior, he had gone to Philippi, he had met some people, he met Lydia and some of the other women um, down by the river as they were praying, and they got saved and they got baptized, and then Paul gets thrown in jail, and the jailer gets converted, and the jailer tells his family about Christ, and they trust in Christ, and then they all get baptized, and he, he then leaves the city, and it, this church is birthed, it's planted and you can see the Holy Spirit moving and saving. And then it was eight to ten years later that he writes back to this church, which now has a structure. It has a leadership team. He writes and addresses elders and deacons and, and the other saints that are in this church. And we're not going to dive into those details, but the fact that there's people to be identified by those offices indicates that there was some type of leadership structure that's been formed out of this church over the last eight to ten years. And what happened was the people in Philippi had sent Epaphroditus with a gift and Epaphroditus was going to make the trip. He made the trip from Philippi to Rome. And he gave them the gift. And then Paul's writing this letter to then send back with Epaphroditus as he goes back home to Philippi to then update the Philippian church on not only Epaphroditus's well-being, but also on how things are going with Paul. Epaphroditus had actually almost lost his life in the first journey from Philippi to Rome when he was bringing the gift on behalf of the Philippian church. 
And Paul tells us at the end of chapter 2, I'm going to send Epaphroditus back to you so that you may know that it's going well with him. And so he's writing this letter and he's doing a few things in the letter. One of them is he's thanking them. They had sent a gift, uh, more than likely a monetary gift to help provide for some of the needs that he has while under house arrest. And Epaphroditus was that messenger who carried the gift on their behalf and gave it to Paul. He was writing to thank them for their gift. He's writing to update them on his present circumstances. He's writing to tell them a little bit of what's going on. Yes, I'm still in jail, and this is what I see happening. He's writing to celebrate God's work in and through them. He's writing to uh, rejoice with them about what he sees God doing and how he sees God working and moving and Even where there are difficult circumstances, such as his own imprisonment, he writes and speaks of joy because he knows that God's doing something. And he writes in such a way that he indicates that if he hadn't been in prison, the gospel would not have gone forth and advanced as far as it has. And it's this amazing way that Paul's communicating that he actually sees and understands that God has done more through his imprisonment than he could have done or might have done if he was not imprisoned. And so he looks at his circumstances and he goes, all right, I'm going to rejoice in these. And he wants to celebrate God's work in and through the Philippian church. And lastly, he writes to exhort them. He writes to encourage them in their faith, and he writes to exhort them. And there are commands given to this church about what they should do and what they should continue to focus on. And we can see in our church those commands as as written for and written to the Philippians, but for us. And when we get to chapter 1, verse 1, or verses 27, we have the first command in the book, and he tells them, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Live in such a way that, that your life reflects this gospel you claim to believe in, this good news that Jesus came, and he, he, he left the glories of heaven, and he took on human flesh, and he was born. All those things that we just celebrated at Christmas, his advent, But he didn't just come to be a baby lying in a manger. He came to one day die on a cross. And he came to rise from that grave he was put in. Let your manner of life be worthy of this gospel you say you believe in. And he tells them, look, there should be some things true of the community you're with. There should be a standing together. That idea of standing together is the idea of holding the line. It, it, it's, it's the recognition that culture and, and even, even our, our own sinfulness that we struggle with and, and certainly the, the Satan's desire for temptation wants to push against that line wants to, well, it's, it's, it's not that big of a deal if you compromise here and, and you can give up a little bit there and it's all right if, if that area doesn't, quite look like the scriptures say they look and he says no you stand together you hold the line and the word picture communicates a a linking of arms of sorts shoulder to shoulder we're going to hold this line 
He says, but you just don't hold the line defensively. You also strive together. You, you push. You work for and with one another, alongside of one another, to take this gospel, this good news. You strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And as you do, he says, there should be a fearlessness that is true of you. And this fearlessness powerfully communicates a couple things. To those who might oppose you, this fearlessness communicates that you're untouchable. That you have a salvation that is guaranteed. You have a, a hope that you and your life is rooted in. That, that I'm untouchable. I'm doing what the Lord has called me to do and I will do it until he calls me home and you can't touch me. And again, this is written by a man in prison, literally chained to another human being. I mean, he, he wasn't a guy roaming around or living in a nice cushy house speaking of him being untouchable. It's a man living in some pretty significant circumstances and, and unjust imprisonment and saying, All right, Caesar's got nothing. The worst he can do or the very best he can do is take my life. And you know what happens then? I go to heaven and that's gain. And until I do, my life's going to be characterized as one that follows and pursues Christ. And I'm untouchable. He can't do anything. And so there's a fearlessness that communicates something very powerfully. Communicates to those who would oppose us that we're untouchable. But it also communicates to them, uh, they're not messing with just people. And there's a destruction coming from God if they don't bow and confess and Paul introduces Jesus then in chapter 2 as an example of what it looks like to count others more significant than yourselves, looking out for their interests first and not your own. He says if you're going to stand together, if you're going to strive alongside of one another, if you're going to be fearless, there's some things that then have to be true of you as you grow and desire to do that, and that is you count others more significant than you. So selfishness is going to stand in the way of standing together. You can't be selfish and link arms and hold the line to count others more significant than yourselves. There's a humility that should characterize us, a desire to, to, to self-deprecate, lay down my desires, lay down my wishes, lay down my rights for the rights of those around me. And he introduces Christ then as, as the example, the, the, the greatest example of what that looks like. And not just the example to follow, but our Lord to worship. And he says, therefore God has highly exalted him. And at the name of Jesus, one day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And he introduces Christ as an example of how we can figure out how to do this, counting and humble and living together. And we get to chapter 3 then. And he begins to write some things as he is transitioning of sorts in the book. And he begins chapter 3, verse 1, with the word, finally. And this isn't a word that communicates uh, chronology. It, it, it's a word that communicates, now I'm going to begin to tell you the rest of what I want to tell you. There's more that I need to say, and so here's, here's now the beginning of that. And, 
And so he's going to use the word finally in chapter 4 as well. And it's not like he tried to wrap up the book at two different points and just found himself unable to land the plane. He's intentionally saying, you know, furthermore, here's some more instruction that I have for you. Here's some more things that I want you to think about. Here's some more things that I want you to do. And so we get there and we, we get into then those things now in chapter 3. So before we go any farther, let's pray, and then we'll hop into chapter 3, and we'll see if we can't end up getting through verse 7. God in heaven, we, God, we thank you that you've spoken. Thank you that you've given us your word. As we thought through a few weeks ago, you've spoken long ago at many times and in many ways through the prophets, but now in these last days you've spoken through your Son. Jesus is the greatest prophet and He has spoken. And Lord, we believe then it's in our best interest to draw near and listen. And this morning we don't just want to listen to, to, to words, we want to understand. We want to have ears to hear. We want to be able to think and process, and apply. So God, help us to do those things. Would you be gracious and help us to understand your word? Give us insight, give us understanding. God, may we know more of Christ this morning. Know more of what he has done for us, this, this gospel, this good news. May we love him more. And we pray this in his good name. Amen. So go with me to verse 1 of chapter 3. We'll just start there and read what Paul has written. Uh, Finally, or to what remains, or furthermore, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe. For you, So that's where Paul begins as he's now transitioning from talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus and their travel plans. And he's now going to give them this command. And the command he gives in verse 1, chapter 3 is the command to rejoice. He writes that as a command. And he has used the words joy, rejoice, gladness some 13 different times in this little four-chapter book. It's, it's one of the major themes of this book, about how we can have joy in the midst of this life, whether the circumstances of life are pleasant, whether they are difficult, how we can have joy and where that joy is to be rooted in. And here in verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul tells them, and by extension us, choose joy. The command is for you and I to rejoice in the Lord. Now, if it's command, it implies that it's something we're capable of doing, something we should be doing, something that we're commanded to go and do. But let's go back just a few verses and just think for a minute of what he writes in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, where he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good purpose. The idea there is that while we have been called to do things, 
God empowers what he requires. And so here, we've been called to rejoice. Paul commands us to choose joy, but we do so by God as he empowers what he requires by his spirit through his word. He says rejoice in the Lord. Let's try to give a definition to this joy I would submit to you that this joy, and in the scriptures, joy is perhaps defined as Christ-centered contentment and gladness. Contentment in the sense that there's a choice made that, okay, I'm, I, I'm content. Maybe I don't like my circumstances, but I'm content in them. Gladness in, in such a way that that pulls in our emotions, that pulls in the, um, the emotive element of that. Where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose to be glad in who the Lord is. Rejoice in the Lord. A Christ-centered contentment and gladness. This isn't happiness based on external circumstances. Paul's circumstances certainly would not have given credence to just mere happiness. And I'm happy when I find a parking spot close to the front of the store, especially on days like today. That's not what he's talking about here. This isn't a blissful ignorance that there's not anything wrong in the world. No, I I would actually submit to you that that a Christ-centered contentment and gladness is going to readily recognize that there's a brokenness in our world, that there's something within the fabric of our world that is broken and not the way that it should be and it's the result of sin as we understand from Genesis 3 that that we've actually never experienced the world the way God had intended and designed it to be in its fullest sense. There's an inherent brokenness to that and so we need eyeglasses and we got to go to the dentist to get cavities filled and bones will break and ACLs will tear and there's, there's a brokenness and There's diseases that come that aren't cured. There's relational brokenness. And and joy doesn't ignore that. Doesn't somehow blissfully remain ignorant to the reality that there's, there's a brokenness in our world. But this is joy that's in the Lord. And we choose joy. We're commanded to choose joy because of the gospel. And our joy is in the Lord. See, there, there's, there, there's a person then that our joy can be focused on. And it's this prophet who speaks. It's this priest who's interceded and sacrificed. It's this king who is already reigning and will one day fully and finally reign. Do you see how the question, who is Jesus, still remains the most significant question for us to continue to answer? It's, it's in him that our joy is rooted. Who is he? What has he said? What has he done? What has he promised to do? Can he be trusted? That is joy is to be rooted there. And Paul makes this statement, which is just, quite frankly, amazing. At the end of verse 1, he says, It is easy for me to write these things to you, and it is safe for you. And I found myself this week going, how is joy safe? You read some psychologists, sociologists, anthropologists, they would say that safety 
leads to joy. And there's a sense that that is true. If you feel safe at work, your position is safe in the company, you're going to work with a greater joy than if you arrive to work and wonder, is today the day that I'm going to be fired? If you know that there's some security there, there's a, there's a greater joy that you approach that with. The same could be said for relationships. It could be said in all sorts of different areas of life. And it's that safety leads to joy. But that's not what Paul says. So joy leads to safety. And I think if we would just scan back over what he has written to just this church in Philippi, there might be a few ways that we can get our minds wrapped around for what this looks like. And I'd say we see it in a spiritual sense, and we see it in an emotional sense. Spiritual safety. You can see Paul write about this spiritual safety that he has. And it was rooted in the sovereignty of God and his advancing the gospel despite opposition from those outside the church and opposition towards Paul from those inside the church. And so think back to the uh, verses in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. In 15 to 18, he had begun describing how there were people who were calling themselves Christians and running around and preaching a good, solid gospel. Theologically, they were on point, but they were doing so to cause greater affliction to him who was in prison. There were those from inside the community of believers that were saying and preaching the right things to cause him harm. But he's not in jail because Christians put him there. He's in jail because Rome put him there. And there's opposition from outside as well. And in verse 18 of chapter 1, he says, I will rejoice. And I will continue to rejoice. There's a, there's a spiritual safety there. And Paul talks about that in verse 19. For I know that your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's speaking there, I think, both and to his physical release from prison. But in an ultimate sense, his full and final salvation he'll experience one day as well. The untouchable man. What can Caesar do to me? What can those opponents do to me? There was a spiritual safety in this joy. There was an emotional safety in this joy. And this was rooted in the sovereignty of God and the promises of God. And again, you can read and we'll see that Paul considers himself an untouchable man. Go to Philippians 2 verse 17. Paul says this, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. I don't think he was in any way ignorant to the fact that he may lose his life in this prison. He was also at the same time confident that he was going to be released and able to come back to the church in Philippi and strengthen them for their joy. He says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice. There was a safety, an emotional safety in this joy 
And again, it was, what can Caesar do? The best he's got is to take my life. And you know what? That's an upgrade. That is gain. So if there is safety in Christ-centered joy, that, that contentment and gladness rooted in the gospel, if there's safety in that, if this type of joy is what can sustain an unjust prison sentence with the possibility of execution, if this type of joy is what can focus and, and lead to a steadfastness that sees death as actually an upgrade and everything between now and that moment of death as an opportunity to live for the glory of Christ, then it is this type of joy that has to be guarded. It is this type of joy that has to be preserved and has to be protected. And that's where Paul goes next in verse 2. And he's going to begin to now tell them and warn them of people who want to rob them of this joy in the Lord. Of this safety in the Lord. This contentment, this gladness in the Lord. And he begins in verse 2. Look out. Beware for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. They're Three commands there, the, the exact same word written three different times, every single one of them as a command for you to do. He is telling us there is danger here. Watch out. I mean, if, if he had a flashing sign, I think he could have given them. It was just a danger, danger, danger. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, he's writing words that our context in our 2018 American culture doesn't necessarily help us understand naturally. So when he says, look out for the dogs, he's not talking about the 14-pound cockapoo that lives inside of my house who is going to lick and sniff you before anything malicious takes place. He is writing and using this word picture of, of wild feral dogs that would have roamed these streets, eaten whatever they could have found, whenever they could have found it, dogs were not domesticated in the sense that we enjoy them today. They were dangerous, wild, dirty animals. Pigeons, perhaps, don't present a, a, a danger to us, but they're perhaps as dirty and as unbecoming in our culture today, unless you're the bird lady from Mary Poppins and then you just want to feed them all. But he's telling us to watch out for the dogs. Watch out for these unclean, wild, untamed people. He goes on to say they're evildoers, literally those who work evil. They got their hands to the shovel. They're digging a hole of evil. That's what they're about. There's intent and desire to bring about that which is harmful and damaging. Look out for them. And then we get a little bit more clarity as to what exactly, perhaps, this group of people, these dogs, these evildoers were actually saying and why it is indeed so dangerous. And we do so in the last way that he describes them. Look out for the mutilators of the flesh. That word means to mutilate by severe cutting. 
the issue at hand is the issue of justification. That, that's what's at hand here. And what stands in complete contrast to justification is legalism. So let me define those two for you so that we understand what we're speaking of. The doctrine of justification says that when I place my faith and trust in Christ, that I am both forgiven of my sins and given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it's on that basis and that basis alone that I am accepted by God, that I become a child of God, that I am born again. And so it's not enough to just say that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That is true and that is gloriously true and we cannot ever dismiss that and we cannot ever push that away, but that's only part of the gospel. The other part is that the perfect life that Jesus lived, the perfect obedience that he did everything with, is then actually credited to my account. And so he made him, God the Father made God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So on the cross, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all of my sin. And when I place my faith and trust in him, I am credited with his perfect obedience. That's justification. Legalism is the complete opposite that says God accepts you when you do all the right things or don't do as many of the wrong things, when you, when you obey the right way. God loves you when you obey. If you don't obey, God doesn't love you. That's what's at stake here. That's what the issue is at hand. And they are completely polar opposites. One is gloriously true, and the other is something that we must watch and guard and be on the lookout for. The idea of mutilating of the flesh, Paul's going to pick up and describe in a little greater detail. And he's going to do so by giving the specific detail of circumcision as what was taking place. The mutilating of the flesh was a commandment by this group of people that was coming and potentially coming to this church in Philippi, requiring all of those believers to be circumcised. Circumcision was commanded by God in the Old Testament. It's actually a sign of the Old Covenant that God made with Abraham. They were to be circumcised, young boys were to be circumcised on the eighth day. It signaled that they were a part of God's covenant. If anybody wasn't circumcised, they were cut off from the people of God. But that physical act was always intended to point forward to something spiritual. It's in Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, that Moses tells the people of Israel to circumcise their hearts. So you guys got the flesh thing taken care of? But it's actually your heart that needs to be circumcised. It's in Deuteronomy 13, or 30, verse 6, that Moses actually says, you know what, it's God who's going to circumcise your heart. 
And circumcision became essentially regarded as, as, as really the only thing that needed. Or perhaps the, the best way to simply illustrate the idea that there had to be specific acts of obedience done for God to accept you. It, it became easiest to recognize and, and reference or bring together all of the obedience to the Old Testament law by just citing circumcision. And this was something that was largely regarded and practiced and, and understood by the first century Jew. And it became regarded as really the only thing one needed, regardless of their faith and trust in the promises of God. And Paul actually writes about this in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. For no one's a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision's a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so there is this group that taught that your salvation was not based on your faith and trust in the promises of God. It was based on the things that you did. And those things had to start with circumcision. And they had to then roll forward to the other aspects of the law. And Paul says, look out. Look out for these dogs. Look out for these workers of evil. Look out for these ones who want to mutilate the flesh. Paul is warning them to be on guard for those who want to make God's love for you, God's acceptance of you, conditional on what you do. We'll see in verses 5 and 6, he kind of broadens that out to speak directly to heritage, social status, but most certainly includes behavior as well. And this is not just a first century thing. This is a 21st century thing. This is a 2018 thing because there will be people that will walk around our neighborhood and knock on your door and want to have a conversation with you. And what they want you to understand is that your acceptance from God or by God is conditional on your obedience. And it's subtle and it's dangerous. And it's the complete opposite of the gospel. It is not justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is not, I place my faith and trust in the promises of God, have my sins forgiven, have my account credited with the righteousness of Christ. That's why Romans 8.1 can say what it says, therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because when, when God sees those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, He sees His Son. He sees the perfect credited righteousness of Jesus to our account. To push things further in verse 3, Paul says, For we are the circumcision. What he's saying there is, we are the people accepted by God. And he uses a lot of wordplay in this passage. And what he's saying here is that we are accepted 
by God. And he's going to give three different ways for us to ask some diagnostic questions as to whether or not we're, I'm a part of that group, whether you're a part of that group. And this is what he says. He doesn't speak to circumcision as an act that's done. He doesn't ask if you didn't eat bacon last week. He doesn't ask if you've tithed or gone to church or obeyed the Sabbath. He says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. I think the idea there is that our worship is directed to Christ. Jesus promised that when the Holy Spirit came, He would glorify the Son. So I think to worship by the Spirit of God is to have our worship directed at Christ. Secondly, He says, we are those who glory in Christ. We're those who say and speak of our confidence for salvation as a confidence in the person of Jesus Christ. We rejoice in the Lord. And in contrast to that, Paul goes on to speak the third thing, write the third thing to say, and we're not those who put our confidence in the flesh. He's speaking here of these two different ideas. One that says, I got to do a whole bunch of stuff so that God will accept me. I got to do a whole bunch of things so that God will love me. I got to have, I got to have parts of my body look the right way. I got to, I got to be at church on Sunday. I got to give so much in the offering. I got to help old ladies across the street. I got to give and do all, all, whatever the list is for God to accept me. That's legalism. He's saying, no, 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 we're the ones accepted by God. Those who worship Christ, who glory in Christ, who look to Him for our salvation, not anything that we have done. I love that line from the hymn, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. We'll sing in a few minutes Another song, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Where's your hope this morning? Because this is subtle, and it's dangerous, and it's, it's, not as, it's not as obvious as somebody knocking on your door telling you you got to do a whole bunch of good stuff for God to love you. You really actually have to press them hard to get them to acknowledge that's what they're there to tell you. But that's what they're there to tell you. But it's subtle in the sense of, do you feel like you got to do devotions every morning so that you have a good day? Did you, did you give today thinking that God might love you a little bit more? Are you here now thinking that you might have a few bonus points with the big guy because you... You came, and oh, you came early as well. That's got to be good for something, right? Made it to Sunday school today. First day of the year, it's good. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And we got to move quickly through this next part. Paul continues to say, I have reason for confidence in the flesh. If that was good for something, 
If, if we could put our confidence in the flesh, if we could look at the things that we've done, if we could look at our heritage, if we could look at our social status, if we could look at our behaviors, I, I've got a better resume than anybody anywhere. I have more reason, I have a greater confidence in the things that I've done than anything else. So those guys that are coming around telling you that you've got to do some things, that's cute. Let me tell you what I've done. And he begins then in verses 5 and 6 and says, look, I was circumcised on the eighth day. And what we'll see through this list is I think Paul identifies things regarding his heritage, things regarding his social status, things regarding his obedience. He speaks first to his heritage, circumcised on the eighth day. Paul says, look, I, I, I was circumcised on the exact day that somebody was supposed to be circumcised on. God told Abraham that it should be the eighth day. There I was. And I think he's also speaking here potentially to his family pedigree. Paul didn't have much of a choice when he was eight days old as to what was going to happen to him. And my mom and dad brought me. They did what needed to be done because they were people following. They were people obeying. I was there regarding his heritage. He said, I'm people of Israel. I'm not a Gentile. My national identity is with the people of Israel. And for us, folks, this, this is disappearing in our culture today. This is less in 2018, 2017 than it's ever been before. But there was a time in American history that to be American was to be considered a Christian. It's a similar idea. That I'm a Christian, I'm an American, right? What else would I be? National heritage. Paul says, no, it's not worth anything. He speaks then to social status. He says, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. And this gets into some Old Testament history, but there was a point in time after Solomon reigned that the kingdom divided. It was actually a few months into Solomon's reign. Ten tribes went to the north, two tribes went to the south. The tribes that went to the south, the two, were considered the ones that, that really remained faithful to the Lord. Benjamin was one of those tribes. Paul's saying, look, uh, uh, my social status, the, the blood that runs through these veins is blood that doesn't run and blood that stays faithful. And he goes a step further. I'm a Hebrew to the Hebrews, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm a poster child for what it looks like to be a good Hebrew. I, I think there's some modern day equivalents perhaps for us to say, I'm not from that side of town. I'm on this side of the tracks. Now, I don't live on West 4th Street. I live on East 4th Street, East 2nd Street, not West 2nd Street. Hebrew of the Hebrews. Paul then begins to speak to his own choices. He didn't have a choice as to where he was born, what his parents did on the eighth day. He didn't have a choice as to what tribe he was going to come from. But he had a choice over these next three things. And he says, look, um, in regards to being a Pharisee, uh, yeah, check. That's how I approached the law. I was a Pharisee. I added laws to the law so that I wouldn't break the law. You want to talk about zeal? You want to talk about passion? I found people that didn't agree with the law that thought Jesus was the Messiah, you guys just want to get them to, to, to mutilate their flesh? I killed them. My, my zealousness was 
demonstrated in the fact that I persecuted this church. So that's cute that you just want to do some things and tell them to obey some laws, but I took their lives. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. This is a fascinating one. Especially on the heels of what he just said in regards to his zealousness as a persecutor of the church. Because I would submit to you that I think Paul was completely, or he believed, before he met Christ on the road to Damascus, he was completely justified in taking the lives of those in the church that he persecuted. Because he says, my righteousness under the law is blameless. It's not that he acknowledged that he was sinless because the law provided for, and that's what all of the blood Old Testament sacrifices were for, the atonement of that. Because I did everything exactly the way it was supposed to be done. If anyone has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. But look what he says in verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. doesn't matter if you live in the Bible Belt. doesn't matter if your grandma's gone to church all of her life. It doesn't matter if you came to church on Easter. It doesn't matter if you come to church on Christmas Eve. It doesn't matter if your dad's a pastor or a missionary. It doesn't matter if you try to do good things. It doesn't matter if you're here religiously every Sunday. It doesn't matter if you give money. It doesn't matter if you have perfect Sunday school attendance and you got one of those little badges. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I claim. All of those things that could be seen as ways in in our flesh, that's the the ways that we in our own strength and in our own ability can, can merit and do, needs to be counted as loss. So it doesn't actually do anything. Paul tells us to, Look out for those who want to say otherwise. Look out for those who want to make God's love conditional based on your heritage, your social status, your obedience. Those who are the accepted people of God, loved by Him, adopted into His family, are those who worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ, and put no confidence in the flesh. So the band's going to come, and we're going to sing those words that I just quoted a few minutes ago. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Christ alone the cornerstone, the weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, He is Lord of all. And it's, it's that Lord, it's, it's this risen, exalted Lord who we rejoice in. 